I'm going to take you back with me on a memory trip for a minute <clears throat> as we start out this morning. It was the uh, early fall of the year 2000, <clears throat> which disqualifies a lot of y'all from having a memory because that was <laughs> you weren't around. And I was, go with me here, I was sitting, sitting, oddly enough, on the back of a trailer that was being pulled by an old tractor in Centerville, Tennessee. And no, it is not Centerville, it's Centerville. Amanda and I had moved to the little town of Hohenwald, Tennessee, just a month or so before, to help work with a house church there. We knew no one. And uh, mutual connection had got us there. That kind of... And we had obtained gainful employment as laborers on a mum farm. I know what a mum is? Potted plant, big thing. You set them on your porch in the fall kind of thing. There in Centerville, the mum farm, we worked. It was just a few miles up the road from Hohenwald. That farm was owned by one of the families that was going to the church, some of the finest people. We'll call them the salt of the earth this morning. Good people. Um, they owned the farm and they hired us both. So as I sat on this trailer, riding over to the field to help gather mums to send out for sale, I saw quite a sight. I saw fields full of full-blooming mums. And I'm going to show you a picture. This is not the mum farm that I went to. And this does in no way, shape, or form do justice to what I saw that day. I mean, not even close. That's not even close to what I saw. I'm talking acres and acres, different pads, different fields with mums in full bloom. And it was gorgeous. I mean, it's like literally breathtaking. I wish I had a picture. I wish you could have been there with me. That would be even better because to experience it, I've got the picture in my mind and it still is awesome to me, but it's hard to describe, but it, it was gorgeous. <clears throat> and as I sat there, jostled by the central Tennessee landscape and the uh, tractor that was named Booger, uh, not me, not to be confused with me, by the way, but... As I sat there being jostled, I had this thought come to my mind as I saw all these beautiful flowers in the fields before me. And the thought was this. What if there were no workers to gather these plants and haul them off? Now, they'd be beautiful there in the fields for a while, and a few people would get to enjoy them as they were meant to be enjoyed. But the general public, the people who would buy them and enjoy them and set them on their porch and talk about what kind of mum it is, that, that would never happen. And then, after a little while, not very long, they'd die. And you'd have pots full of dead plants sitting everywhere. If there were no workers to go out into the fields and bring in the mums, not the sheaves, the mums, Bringing in the mums. No, that's not a song. The mums would die and the farmers would have no reward for their labor, which was intense. A lot of work. And that's a sad thought. A sobering as well. So what if there were no workers? That brings us to our passage today as we reach the end of Matthew chapter 9. Man, it seems like we've been in 8 and 9 for a while, but we reached the end of this passage this morning. And it's a short passage that we have, four verses, but again, dense, thick, and engaging. So <clears throat> if you would, please stand with us as we read aloud the very words of God. You want to hear the audible voice of God? It's not mine. It's these words that you can hear God speak as we read these four verses. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers 
into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, this is indeed sobering to read this, God. And I pray that you would open up our hearts and open up our minds to receive by the power of your Spirit what you have for us today. And may our lives be changed and in the process, God, may the lives of others be changed through us taking in this Word and then living it out by the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, excuse me. So we saw last week uh, the last of the miracles of Matthew chapters 8 and 9 where Jesus healed two blind men and a demon-oppressed man who had been mute. And how did that passage end? Remember what we talked about last week, kind of what was the opening and what we said was going on? The Pharisees had a bad case of what? Sour grapes. And that, that passage last week ended with these Pharisees saying that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. They just couldn't take it. They knew he was doing something. They knew that visible things were happening, so they had to explain it away somehow. Makes sense, doesn't it? Not so much, right? But as we reach the end of chapter 9 today, it's important to remember what we have seen. We have seen a broad overview of the miracles that Jesus was performing in His life and ministry. And I say that because this is just, we barely pulled back the cover. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, barely pulled back the cover and showed us a handful of things that Jesus did. And they are miraculous. And they are awe-inspiring. And Matthew surely did not intend in any way that these miracles that he recorded, he didn't intend to imply that these were the only miracles that Jesus did. He just gave us an overview of the types of things that Jesus was doing as He displayed His power and asserted His Messiahship to the people living in the regions around Him in that time. We also said last week that while the Pharisees were fuming, the people who were seeing these miracles were drawn to Jesus as the possible Messiah, but it's probable that they were drawn for the wrong reasons. We called them beholders last week. And so that they were enthusiastic about Jesus' miracles, but not necessarily interested in changing their lives to show that He was their Lord, that He was their Master. They were miracle mongers. They just liked to show and was impressed with what they thought Jesus might be able to do for them individually and them as a nation. Well, today we see that Jesus wasn't just working miracles He was involved in other activities that were just as important and I would say probably even more important than healing, than miracles in His earthly ministry. So verse 38, I'm sorry, says... Ooh, I'm 35. I'm stuck. There we go. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease... And every affliction. So we see here that some of the other work that Jesus was doing, besides just miracles, <clears throat> is that he was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So we see three things that he did here, right? Teaching in the synagogues, that's one, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, two, and three, healing every disease and every affliction. Three main activities, teaching, preaching, and healing. So those are the main things that Jesus was doing. Matthew sums up his ministry with that little blurb there. It just paints another broad stroke picture of what Jesus was doing of his ministry in his life on earth. So we've seen him teach and preach up through now, specifically Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which was the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen him teach and heal in Matthew 8 and 9. So here at the end of this section in these two chapters, at the end of chapters 8 and 9, very important, okay? Tune in, tune in. At the end of this section of chapter 9, we're seeing a transition happening. And this is very important. I know I've said that twice now. Let me say it one more time. This is very important. Okay? We're seeing a transition. Jesus 
is about to multiply his ministry by sending out his disciples, which is what we'll look at in chapter 10. Okay? And when he does, he's going to charge them and equip them to do exactly what he's been doing. Teach, preach, heal. So Jesus is going to commission his men, 12 men, which we'll see next week, Lord willing, and he's going to say, go out and do what I'm doing. Now, can you imagine? They've been watching this. They've been listening. They've been close to him. And then he says, now I want you to go do it. And we see the start of that transition today. So our passage today gives us that clear picture of what he's doing and his plan and his vision for the need for more people than just him. Jesus was one man, truly man and truly God, but he was one man in Palestine 2,000 years ago walking around doing these things. So he, he's got a plan, he's got a vision, and he wants more than just himself to be doing He's modeling here, here in this verse, what his church should be doing after him. And he's modeling what these first disciples, who will be called apostles, and we'll, again, we'll look at that next week, the difference there, what they will be doing when he sends them out. So he's modeling it for them. So let's look a little more carefully at these activities that we have here in this verse before we leave it. First, there's teaching. Okay? <clears throat> it says that Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. We've talked about this before, especially when we talked about the intertestamental period and then when they came back uh, with Ezra, Nehemiah, <clears throat> and Esther. Synagogue life was birthed for the Jews when they were in exile. While the Jewish nation was in exile back there in the Old Testament, they still had a desire to worship, but they had no temple in the foreign lands that they'd been exiled to. But they did live communally, which means that Jewish people settled in settlements together and lived close together, shared life together while they were in exile. So they would gather in these communities on the Sabbath in a community type of building. And while they were there in that building, listen to this revolutionary idea that they had, okay? They would have sections of the Scriptures read, which is our Old Testament. And then after the Scripture was read a scribe or a learned man, an elder, would give the meaning of the text that was read. Huh, sounds like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? Once they came back and settled in towns and villages in the land of Israel, they continued the synagogue practice even after the temple had been rebuilt. So the synagogue became the weekly place where the community of believers in each town, each village would meet. Okay? So they came back. The synagogue was a social hub too and a place of public worship, and they would have the Scripture read, and the men of the town or village who were taught would teach or give the meaning. Now this is exactly what Jesus was doing. And they had a custom that a visiting rabbi would be given the opportunity to speak or teach as a matter of priority. So when Jesus went into a new place, a different town, a different uh, village, he would be asked. They knew that he was a rabbi. He had his group of disciples. He had his rabbi garb. And they knew that they had seen him and heard him teaching. And he would be given kind of priority in these places because he was a visiting rabbi. So as he traveled around, he would teach. Now, can you imagine? Like we're here in Beckley, West Virginia, and Rabbi Jesus shows up. We're like, okay, Jesus, you get to teach today. Can you imagine sitting there and hearing Jesus teach the Scriptures? I can't imagine it. I just can't imagine. What, 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 you know, which sometimes we know that it made them mad, right? There in Nazareth, they tried to push him off the cliff because what he said they didn't like. So it wasn't always well received. But can you imagine sitting there as Jesus sat there and taught the Old Testament to his people? The word for teach is didasco, and it means to hold discourse with others in order to instruct them to deliver didactic discourses, which is fun to say, deliver didactic discourses. It also means to instill doctrine into one. Jesus was talking, teaching, instructing, instilling doctrine into His hearers everywhere He went. And He just impregnated that whole region, that whole area, that whole land strip with His teaching of the Old Testament. Again, imagine 
the, the sign outside saying, guest speaker, Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, please, I'll, I'll go there. I'll sit and listen to God in the flesh explain His book anytime. And just about eternity. Think about heaven. He's going to teach us stuff and He's going to say, Jason, you were wrong here, 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 here. He just one thing, right? Now let me tell you what it really meant. And I'll be like, yes, sir. So Jesus was teaching. No wonder Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount ends with the crowds coming down off the mountain in awe because Jesus taught with such authority. Never has anyone spake like this man is what the guard said who went to arrest him. I'd say he did. But So Jesus was teaching. That's not all. He was also proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Well, that's loaded. That's, that's a loaded clause, phrase thing going on there. Proclaiming is the word caruso. And it means to preach or to publish. It means to officiate as a herald. And it always has with it, the word Caruso always has with it, the suggestion of formality, gravity, and an authority which must be listened to and obeyed. So this is not some guy just half-cocked saying stuff. This is the king of kings. And what he says, the words that he says are the very words of God. So there is authority there which must be listened to and obeyed. Here's Jesus walking around from town to town, village to village. And all the while, he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now again, can you imagine hearing Jesus proclaim the gospel? Now we have the same gospel. We have the same Holy Spirit. But, but it's Jesus. I mean, perfect man. God in the flesh. And he's preaching the gospel. Anybody ever try to preach the gospel and stumbled, slipped, messed up, left something out, left Jesus in the grave, you never resurrected him, something like that? It happens. People still believe by the grace of God and by the power of the gospel. But but now keep in mind what he was probably preaching because this was before he was dead. This was before he went to the cross. This was before he was resurrected. So, that, I mean, those are essential parts. Uh, Paul would say in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, I deliver to you that which is of first importance, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, was resurrected. Okay, there's the main meat of the gospel for us. Well, Jesus wasn't proclaiming that because it hadn't happened yet. Now, he was probably teaching them that the Son of Man must be delivered over in the hands of sinful men, given over, crucified, buried. But as he went from town to town, he told his disciples that stuff, but I don't think that's the gospel that he was preaching here. It wasn't completed yet, so that wasn't what he was preaching. So what was he preaching? What is the gospel of the kingdom? First, note that it's the gospel. Everybody knows what the word gospel means, right? Good news. Jesus is publishing, proclaiming, heralding with authority good news. He's preaching good news. Then, remember over and over, especially when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to what? The kingdom. Your kingdom come. He taught us to pray here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. You see, the Jews were looking for a kingdom, but that's not the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming. Jesus wasn't preaching a national Israel kingdom. Jesus had a much larger picture than just national Israel. The throne that the descendant of David would sit on for eternity, which the Messiah would be, he would be that descendant of David who would sit on David's throne perpetually. This is a worldwide throne. Actually, it's a universe-wide throne. It's the fulfillment of God's original intention in creation where He would dwell with man and be in union with man in perfect fellowship. That's the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus was proclaiming the good news, listen to me, that God would dwell with man and reign forever. And that it was starting to be manifested right in front of their eyes. These things that I'm doing, he would say, it's the kingdom. All those things that you've heard about a reign where the the lamb will lay down with the lion and the and the baby will play near the adder's den, it's you're starting to see it now. It's not just something that you've heard about. Now you've seen it in action. Look at what I'm doing. Listen to what I'm saying, he would say. You're starting to see it now. God 
is with man. The kingdom of heaven, he would say, is in your midst. It's here. It's happening. And they're going, what? So when do you take over Rome? And he's like, no. No. When do you throw off the yoke of this foreign oppression? No. No. It's much better news than just being rid of foreign oppression. This wasn't a Jewish kingdom that he was proclaiming, but rather a kingdom for every tribe, nation, and tongue as a fulfillment of the prophecy and the covenant that God had made with Abraham to be a blessing to all the earth. And the proclamation of it was starting here in Israel among those who had called themselves at God's own suggestion, God's people. All the prophecies, all the signs, all the plans were coming to fruition now. And that's good news. Jesus was calling people to come be a part of God's eternal work now. So there was teaching and preaching and also healing. And we've seen so much of that over the last two chapters. And this healing served as proof, as validation of the words that Jesus was saying. Proof of His promises. Visible proof of the kingdom in their midst. And the healing He is bringing is shown to be far-reaching. It says that He was healing every disease and every affliction. John MacArthur says that Jesus basically vanquished disease from Palestine while he was conducting his ministry in these three plus years. John the Apostle would say, if everything was written down that Jesus did, there there are not enough books in the world to contain everything that he did. And he's saying the kingdom is now. Through His healing, He was given proof of that. So Jesus is teaching, preaching, and healing. Now while the verse is not so long, the depth of what Jesus is doing is vast indeed. But let's look further into what His motives were. Not just His motives, but His emotions. What were His emotions in all of this? Look at verse 36. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep. Without a shepherd. Now remember, we've said over these past few weeks many times that everywhere Jesus goes, He's pressed in. He's crushed. He's surrounded. People reaching for Him, yelling for Him, coming into the house where He's at, not letting Him rest. Everywhere He goes. Now I myself would be done with that. Okay? I'd say, retreat time. We're having a retreat, guys. Yay, disciples come. We're going to retreat. we got to get out of here. That's what I would do. The, the, they would, the crowd would get on my nerves. I worked, well, I guess I still do. I worked retail with the public for whoa, a long time, 20 years. And there came a point in my life, which I'm ashamed of now, but when I would say consistently, I hate people. I mean, I did. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that now, but literally I was with people all the time. People were doing stupid things. I was cleaning up stupid messes that stupid people had made. People always wanted to talk to the manager. Well, guess who the manager was? That was me. And they were giving me a, Karen, I don't care that you got a coupon. It's expired. No, I'm not giving you that. And so just you get fed up with people. I didn't want to be around people. I was infested with people all the time. But look at Jesus. After all this public ministry, after being pressed in and grabbed and sought out over and over and over, church, look at your Lord. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus did not hate people. He had compassion for them. Now that word compassion, he had compassion for them. You just got to see it. okay? And I've practiced this. I doubt I get it right. But there's the Greek word. I mean, there's a G, a C, an H, and an N right together. Splangnizomai. That's a great word. Let me tell you what it means. Read it there. It means to have compassion to be moved with compassion, to be moved as to one's bowels. That's bowels, not bowls, y'all. 
Moved as to one's bowels, hence to be moved with compassion, have compassion, for the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. So guys, here's a good line for you. I love you in my bowels. Don't do that. The Greek mind, the Roman mind, the Jewish mind would equate the deepest feelings with their bowels. I mean, that wasn't odd for them to say, you know. We think of something else when we think of bowels now. But, but so if, if they had deep-seated emotion, it was from their bowels. And that's exactly what this word means. To have compassion down in the deepest part of them. Jesus wasn't just feeling sorry for people. He was moved in the depth of and down in the depths of himself with compassion for this mass of humanity. Sounds very God-like, doesn't it? John 3.16, we say so much. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He loved the world so much that He gave His Son. That's the kind of compassion that we're talking about here. It's out of deep emotion. It's out of feelings that make you do something. The word compassion means to suffer with. Jesus felt their pain, their longings, their desires. He suffered with them. And He suffered immensely. And it moved Him. Why? Because, it says, they were harassed. These these crowds, these people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. Again, we need to see those Greek words, because those actually give us insight into what's actually going on here. Because we can read that and say, oh, that's bad. No, it's, it's worse than you think. There's two Greek words here. Okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Eskelmenoi and eremenoi. Okay, the first one is harassed. Eskelmenoi from the root, skolo. And it's translated as trouble, trouble oneself, to skin to flay, to rend, to mangle, to vex, trouble, annoy, to give oneself trouble, and to trouble oneself. That's harassed. Skinned, flayed, mangled, rent, vexed, troubled, annoyed. Jesus saw the crowds, and this is not what He felt about them. This is what He saw that they felt. They felt skinned. They felt mangled. But that's not all. Eremenoi, from the Greek word, the root word, ripto, and it's translated as cast down, cast, scatter abroad, to cast, to throw, to throw down, to cast forward or before, to set down with the suggestion of haste and want of care, to throw to the ground, prostrate. That's how Jesus saw the crowds. That's the compassion that He felt for them. Now think about that. Jesus sees these people, Jesus sees this crowd as being skinned, flayed, mangled, vexed, troubled, annoyed, cast down, thrown to the ground, and cast out. Why? I don't think it's the Romans that He's concerned about. I don't think it's the foreign oppression that he sees and he feels compassion for. I don't think it's the scribes and the Pharisees. He's mad at them, as he should be. I think he sees the crowd and he sees the effects of Satan, the enemy, the accuser on this crowd. Jesus sees a mass of humanity that is being bullied by the accuser, that serpent of old, harassed by the adversary. And they are. And they are. Jesus would say in John 10 that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus looks at this crowd and He sees that happening to these people in mass. Now that analogy from John 10 is applicable here. Let's look at it really quick. Jesus is saying that He's the good shepherd and that those who aren't the shepherd are thieves who sneak in to harm the sheep. And then look at this, John 10, 7-13. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them. And scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus puts himself up against a hired hand who doesn't care about the sheep, who's only there to protect himself and to make money. I don't care about these stupid sheep. Wolf's coming. I'm out of here. Jesus says, not me. I lay down my life for the sheep. And he sees these people, this crowd, this mass as being harassed, flayed, thrown down by the wolf. Jesus feels grief and compassion for him. Now, so plug that into Matthew 9.36 is where he just came from. He says, The crowds are like sheep without a shepherd. And the good shepherd grieves with them and for them as he looks at them and sees their true condition. They probably didn't see it themselves. But he did. And it grieves him Tremendously, down into the depths of his being. So he wants to do something. So what's he do? He could have just like spoke words of mass healing, right? Everybody be well. And let me tell you, if Jesus said it, it would have happened. He could have called for no more sickness, no more disease. No, he calls for action but maybe not the action that we might think. Verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, so wait wait, wait a second, so he's moved with compassion and he sees the crowds and he wants something done. So then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he's feeling compassionate. He's moved down in the depths of his being for these crowds. And so he turns and speaks to his disciples. And that's pretty important. Out of his compassion for the crowds, Jesus is moved to action. And that action first and foremost involves his men. First and foremost... I feel compassion for this mass. Guys, don't miss that. Jesus wants to help. So He starts to employ His disciples. And Jesus didn't just see these crowds. Jesus saw into the future and He saw you and me. And He saw Hong Kong. And he saw South Africa. And he saw Australia. And he saw dictators. And he saw the enemy pulling puppet strings over and over and over. And the first thing he does to address it all is turns and talks to his disciples. So important. This is going to be Jesus' standard mode of operation from this point forward. Again, this is huge. This is monstrous. He will continue to teach, preach, and heal, but He's going to multiply that ministry by enlisting His men, His 12 men, to do the same things. He's going to focus on what only He can do, which is the work of redemption, dying on a cross to pay the penalty of sins for His people. But others, His men, they can teach... They can preach. They can heal. Others can work the field. And Jesus alludes to that in His statement. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus refers to the crowds in light of the harvest. Now what's that? I think if we just read that and surface scan over it, we think, oh, that means that He's bringing His people in. Like mums. Like so many mums, right? And, and I'm sure that's part of it, but that's not the only part of it. 
The harvest is mentioned in the Scriptures over and over again in the Old Testament, talking about the day of the Lord. And that's not just for believers. When we get into Matthew 13, somewhere up the road, and Jesus is delivering the parables of the kingdom, the harvest is mentioned and, and it's mentioned as containing believers and unbelievers. Matthew 13, 30. Speaking of the weeds that were sown in the field, let both the weeds and the good wheat grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now Jesus gives an explanation of that later in the chapter. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds were gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is not just bringing God's people in for rewards, but it's also bringing in Satan's people, lost people, for punishment. And Jesus sees the crowd through that lens and He is moved with compassion and engages His guys to help Him do the work that needs to be done to prepare for that harvest time. The workers are few, he says. So he tells them to do what? Workers are few, so go out, teach, preach, and heal? No, not yet. Something else has to happen first. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. I am moved with compassion for these mangled, cast-down masses, and I want you to do something, guys! Since the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, therefore, pray. You're like, oh, this is a prayer sermon. Yes, it's a prayer sermon. Because he's preaching a prayer sermon, not me. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, so pray. Pray earnestly. Probably not what I would think would be the next step. We would say what? Go! The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, so go! We have camps and meetings and and rallying cries. Go, 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 go! And Jesus says, stop! Pray! All you're going is going to do nothing if you don't pray. Looks good. Frequent flyer miles and I've been to 28 countries and man, we're going back. We've got crusades planned. Stop it! And pray. Plentiful harvest, few workers. So pray. Pray earnestly. Jesus knows best, right? Ask God to do something. Ask Him, beg Him earnestly, passionately, purposefully. And that word earnestly literally means to beg. Beg God through prayer. To do what? To save people? Well, that would make sense, but no, that's not what He says. No, He says, pray earnestly, the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into His harvest. Now we've seen that Jesus can heal by sending word from a great distance. But yet, He touches some folks that He heals. He doesn't have to, but He does. It's how He chooses to work. Listen to me. God could have chosen to save people in a million different ways. Any way that He wanted to. And He chose to do something that just seems plain crazy to me. God chose to use people. 
evil people, flawed people, lazy people. He chooses to use people. He chooses to use his disciples to earnestly then pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Beg God to send people out to do his work. Really? That, that's it? That's what you want us to do, Jesus? Yes. This is the prayer. Beg God to send out. Literally, beg God to thrust forth laborers into the field. Remember Jesus' explanation of the parable in chapter 13 that we mentioned earlier? The field is the world. Jesus tells His disciples in the midst of His compassion for the crowds to beg God to send people into the world to do the work of the harvest in that field. Out of compassion, Jesus wants His guys to pray. And He wants them to pray and beg God to send people. People. To do God's work. I can't do that. I can't do God's work. I can if God sends me. So pray. Pray that God would send people. And be clear, the command is to pray. That's imperative. He doesn't say for them to go out. He says they are to beg God to send people. Beg God to send people to do the work. So where does this place the emphasis Where does this place the recognized sovereignty? It places it upon God squarely, directly on God. No, don't go out and work. Don't go out and do. Instead, beg God to send people to go and to do. Ask God to work to send people to work. And if God doesn't send, no work gets done. So beg God to send people out to do the work. Again, it's a seemingly little detail, but it's huge. Ask God to do what only God can do. That's to send life and to send a spark and that unction and that power to go and do what we need to do, what He wants done. And we could spend a lot of time here, but we've got to get to application because that's where we're at now. Well, almost. I'm going to take a little detour before we go to application. Stay with me. I just want to show a little bit of appreciation for the genius that is Matthew's gospel. This thing is laid out phenomenally. I've always read it kind of haphazard. I'd read chapter 13, and then I'd read um, the crucifixion account, and then I'd come back and I'd say, oh, Jesus healed a blind man. And it was all kind of a hodgepodge to me. It's not. Listen to me. Look at this narrative that we've looked at so far, and I'll do this quickly. Matthew has, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, arranged this gospel with perfect precision. We've seen Jesus foretold. We saw His birth, His flight to Egypt, and His return to live in Nazareth. All of that was showing how Jesus fit the pre-ministry profile of the Messiah. We talked about that a long time ago. And then, with His baptism and His temptation, we see Him addressed by both God and Satan as the Messiah. Then, as his ministry begins, he lays out the parameters of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, which is his first of five major discourses in this gospel. We'll start the second one next week in chapter 10. These discourses are major points of the gospel, Matthew's gospel, where Jesus digs deeper into his life and mission. So that chapters 5 through 7 was the first one. Then in chapters 8 and 9, we see the miracles and short discourses that display Jesus' Messiahship with perfect clarity. And now today, at the end of chapter 9, we have an indelible transition into what will be the next step in this ingenious progression, which will be the ministry of the disciples. One commentator shows this very well saying this, I quote, The disciples' ministry, which is 9.35 to 11.1, We see today in 935 through 38, 
Matthew using this passage as a summary of Jesus' ministry thus far and introduces the ministry of the disciples, which we'll see in chapter 10. Verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction, is actually repeats 4.23, way back before all this started. And he, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction for the people. So you see there in chapter 4 and chapter 9, he bookends that section with those passages. Okay, Stay with me though. Um, and verse 35 here in chapter 9 repeats 4.23. I got off track. Recalls the content of chapters 5 through 9. So he just summed it all up and anticipates the mission of chapter 10. The prayer in verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, is founded on Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Far from making the outcome dependent on man, prayer is a means commanded by the Lord of the harvest in verse 38 for achieving His saving purpose. The commissioning of chapter 10 next week is both... Well, next few weeks is both a response to the prayer of 938 and an expression of the compassionate heart and the sovereign will of Jesus. I jumped ahead and saw genius. It's just perfect. It's laid out perfectly. It's genius. So I just wanted to show some appreciation there for what the Holy Spirit did through Matthew and laying this gospel out. And the rest of it's the same way. But I want to see where we've been and where we're headed to. So back to application since we took that little detour. Three L's today. L-L-L. Three L's. Love, labor, and Lord. First application point is love. Do you see the compassion of Jesus in this passage today. Listen to me. We sang about it this morning. Don read about it in, this, in the passage. We read about it here in this passage and saw other things. God is compassionate. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. just want to read a few verses here. Psalm 68, 5-6, Father of the fatherless, Don read this morning, and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. I think we rightly proclaim the holiness and the anger of God here. It's not wrong to do that. And we have to know Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. God is full of compassion. Full of compassion. I've been reading this, I've probably read it 10 times in the last six months here, but I'm going to read this again, Psalm 103, 8 through 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you think, God's mad at me. God's upset with me. God's disappointed in me. Listen to me. If you are a child of God... He knows your frame. He knows that you're dust and He has compassion for His children. God looks at you and suffers with you. He feels your pain. He knows your discouragement. He knows your doubts and He's not ashamed of them. He knows your hurts. And what did He do out of all this compassion? 
He gave us a sympathetic high priest. Since then, Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's your application point. God is compassionate. God is compassionate with your physical ailment. God is compassionate with your mental illness. God is compassionate with your emotional disorder. God is compassionate with your busy calendar. And He says, Come then to Me with confidence. Draw near to my throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help you in your time of need. Don't let your doubts, your worries, your fears, your disillusionments push you from God. Let them draw you near to Him because He is compassionate. Do you know the compassion of God this morning? Jesus showed us that perfectly in our passage today. Draw near to Him then and understand that He is compassionate. But, but this is not just about you. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about the crowds out there? Sons of guns, jerks, idiots, dummies, stupid people. That is not the attitude of the Christian. That does not reflect the compassion of your Lord. Shaking your fist at the newsmen on TV. That's not Christian. Now we should hate evil. Every form of evil. Absolutely. But can you see past the evil and see the affliction of the crowds who are even committing that evil? Jesus did. Can you look at the crowds and see the coming judgment? Because Jesus did. Do you feel compassion for the world? Or just frustration, anger, fear? It's not Jesus. That's your flesh. Look at the crowds differently by the grace of God. That's the other part of that application point. Draw near to God, know His compassion, and then show that compassion to the people out there. That's love. Second, labor. I really struggled with this application point. When I get done, you might say, I see that you did. What's what's the work, the labor that we're supposed to do? First and foremost, pray. Before you get ahead of yourself, before you start making plans, before you march into battle, stop and pray. And pray for what? I think too often, I pray God save so-and-so. Okay, what about God send somebody to so-and-so to preach the gospel to them? What if I ask the Lord of the harvest to thrust out workers to go out and reach so-and-so? What if I pray that and God taps me on the shoulder and says, you go and preach the gospel. I'm sending you. So it's two-pronged. I pray and then I'm obedient to the commissioning of the God that I'm praying to. God, send out workers. Okay, go. Oh, me? Yeah, you. We're, we're all qualified by the blood of Jesus. And you can reach people that nobody else can. Literally, you can. So it's a combination of the two. I pray and I work in that order. I don't pray for God to save people. I pray for God to send people. God has to do the saving, but He uses people to bring the message. So then pray, be sent, and then work. That's the order. 
And again, note who he's talking to in today's passage. He looks at his disciples and he says, West Virginia and Jason vernacular, y'all pray. All of y'all. All of you. Pray and beg God to send workers into His harvest field. It's for the disciples of Jesus to do this. And this is the priority work. Prayer is not something that we settle for. Something that we do when we can't do anything else. Well, I'll just pray. I guess I can't do anything. I'll just pray. No! It's first. It precedes everything else. And I just sat this week and talked to some people and said, I don't pray. Prayer is not a priority in my life. And Jesus is saying here clearly, make it a priority in your life by the power of the Spirit. You say, well, I've never been good at praying. Well, good, pray. Well, when do I do it? Yes, without ceasing, all the time, as you're going, as you're coming, when you lay down, when you rise up, when you're at work, when you're at home, pray. And beg God to send out workers into His field. Watchman Nee said that prayer is the tracks that the train of God's works runs on. Lay the track and watch the train run. A few verses to support that and uphold that. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It starts with God sending. So pray that God would send. Pray and be willing to be the answer to your own prayer. Listen to this. Isaiah 6. Temples full of smoke. Train of robes filling the whole temple. Whoa, holy, holy, holy. The angels are flying around. And in the midst of all that, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. And the prayer is, send people. Send me. God, please send me. But be careful. Remember, the harvest is not just about seeing people saved. Listen to the message that Isaiah gets to take to the people. Listen to the message that Isaiah sent with. And he said, God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Okay. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is failed. The holy seed is its stump. Now God is clearly referring to the exile and what he's about to do to Israel. Listen to me. As you are sent out there, the message is not popular. The message will not be received well. Overall, generally. Send me. Send me. The holy seed is its stump. Some people are going to believe. God's going to use you to bring a message that some people are going to come to faith in Christ with. The verbal message of the gospel. And most people are not going to receive it. Does that mean that I don't want sent? Absolutely not. Send me. Send me with your message, God. So the application here in labor is to pray and be willing to answer, be the answer to your own prayer and do whatever is necessary, especially when it's not received. Teach, preach, heal in whatever God, in whatever way God empowers you to do so. Love, labor, last one, Lord. Sovereignty. God is the source of all true spiritual work. And in the midst of this unpopular message, this mission will not fail. 
These disciples that Jesus is telling to pray to God so that they can be sent out are guaranteed success. They can't fail. Does that mean that it's going to be easy? Absolutely not. Matthew 10 is going to show us clearly what the cost is. Jesus gives them instructions and they're all going to lay down their lives for the gospel, every single one of them. John dies of old age after they try to boil him in oil and he doesn't die. The rest of them lay down their lives. And they look like a failure to the eyes of men. But they're guaranteed success because God is the one who sent them. Sent by God to preach the gospel of the kingdom and empowered by the very Holy Spirit of God Himself. They cannot fail. And we cannot fail. There is nothing that will empower your witness more than the fact that you know that God is sovereign over salvation. Don read it this morning, 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we, listen, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. That's sovereignty. And a sovereign God says, come work with me. What's for lunch? That's where our mind goes. What have I got to do tomorrow? And a sovereign God says, come work with me. Come work with me. Guaranteed success. Because they're my field. They're my building. Come work with me in this field. Building this building. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth what Jesus is saying today. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest to send out, thrust out workers into His harvest. I'll finish with Romans 11 because we should. Paul's referring to the Jews. And he says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, Gentiles. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all, Jew and Gentile. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? You know it, church. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. To only Him be glory forever. He's sovereign. So I pray and ask Him to thrust me out into His harvest that I might be a fellow worker with Him, armed with the very gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation for everybody who believes. I see the love of God. I labor with God. And I see the Lordship of Christ in the sovereignty of God who will not fail. Let's pray. God, we get so caught up in the things that just don't matter. Sometimes those are even ministry things, church things. God, this morning, we beg you to thrust workers out into your field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So God, send out workers. Send out laborers. And as you're calling the roll, I say, here am I. Send me. And may we all live with an eye toward the future. 
when that harvest happens, and it will happen. May we look at the crowds with compassion and beg them to be reconciled to God through the power of the gospel. God, we need your help and ask for it in the strong, holy name of Jesus. Amen. If you don't know Jesus, please stay and eat with us. Talk to somebody. Ask them, what's it mean to know Jesus? And I could give you the brief outline. You're a sinner. And you owe God a debt that you could never pay. And Jesus went to the cross to pay that debt. To die and to shed His blood, which we commemorate up here, as a payment for your sins. And if you place your faith in Jesus, who was born, who did die, who was buried, who was resurrected, as sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins, if you place your faith in Him, confess Him as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the Scripture says you shall be saved. Stay and talk to us. Stay and eat with us if you can. Stand and receive a benediction as we finish. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Stay here with us if you can.